welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, uh, today on Sojourner Truth. We continue our coverage on the uptick of racism and violent attacks against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. In March of 2020, when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, former White House occupant Donald Trump attempted to link the deadly virus to the people of China. He frequently referred to it as the China virus and made several other racist remarks about the disease making it seem as though somehow people of Asian descent were responsible for it. Now, one year later, even though Donald Trump is no longer in the White House, his words have had tremendous consequences. New data has revealed that over the past year, the number of hate incidents against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders is greater than previously reported. The data released by Stop AAP. I hate on Tuesday, March 16th, revealed nearly 3,800 incidences were reported over the course of roughly a year during the pandemic. Uh, now, there is a push for a hate crimes law. Let us go to a clip now about uh, that from USA Today. Hate crimes are on the rise in the U.S., in 2019, they reached their highest level in more than a decade. Although hate crimes have been reported as far back as 1992, the U.S. has seen an uptick in hate crimes against Asian Americans, specifically during the coronavirus pandemic. A hate crime is defined as a criminal offense against a person or property that's motivated by bias against a race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, ethnicity, gender, or gender identity. But hate itself is not a crime. The first federal hate crime statute was signed in 1968 by President Lyndon B. Johnson. The Civil Rights Act of 1968 was passed following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and was an expansion of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The statute made it a crime to use or threaten to use force on any person because of race, color, religion, or national origin in any federally protected activity such as attending public schools, jury service, travel, and housing. But it wasn't until 1990 that legislation allowed the government to collect data on crimes that showed evidence of prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, and ethnicity. In 2009, President Barack Obama signed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, expanding the federal definition of hate crimes to include crimes committed against those based on sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, and disability. State laws and agencies are now tasked with enforcing the Shepard Byrd Act, but states differ significantly in their definitions and enforcement of hate crimes. Only 35 states include gender bias in their definition, and three states don't even have hate crime laws. Alrighty, and on March 16th, a series of mass shootings occurred at three spas or Asian massage parlors in the metropolitan area of Atlanta, Georgia, in the U.S. Eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian American, and one other person was wounded. Our guests are Arlene Enoe and Dr. Karen Umemoto. Also today, we'll have our weekly Earth Minute, and for our weekly Earth Watch, we will give an update on First Nations people who are leading a struggle to defend their environment against the coastal gas link pipeline. 
We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. North Korea has test-fired its first ballistic missile since President Biden took office, a provocative move apparently aimed at pressuring the U.S. back to the negotiating table. The talks over the North's nuclear program collapsed after the failure of leader Kim Jong-un's second summit with President Trump two years ago. The U.S. rejected North Korean demands for major sanctions relief in exchange for a partial surrender of its nuclear capabilities. South Korea and Japan reacted swiftly to the ballistic missiles test, with the Japanese prime minister calling it a threat. Yoshihide Suga's remarks appeared on Al Jazeera. It is a threat to our country and to regional security. It's also a violation of the United Nations Security Council resolution. We'll strictly protest and condemn their actions. The launches came a day after U.S. and South Korean officials said the North fired short-range weapons presumed to be cruise missiles into its western sea over the weekend. And it is sure that President Biden will be questioned about policy toward North Korea at his first presidential press conference today. Laura Rossbrow-Tellum reports reporters have been pressuring Biden to meet with them in a wide-ranging press conference. President Joe Biden holds his first formal press conference today. About two months into his presidency, the longest any president has waited to give a formal press conference in 100 years. Biden will likely face questions about the stimulus plan and the filibuster, a hot topic as the Senate debates a major voting rights bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told a Senate hearing on H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which focuses on protecting voting rights. Republicans could try to win over voters with policy ideas in the next election after losing in 2020. Republicans instead are trying to disenfranchise those voters. Shame on them. Schumer highlighted the more than 250 Republican-sponsored bills now in state legislatures that would restrict voting access, saying many echo Jim Crow-era racist policies. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell argued voters' distrust of election results would only increase if the bill passes, which would make it easier to vote. We should be finding ways to rebuild trust, not destroy it further. But that's exactly what a partisan power grab would guarantee. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Laura Rosbratellum. Hundreds of mourners gathered last night at a candlelight vigil to remember the 10 people gunned down at a supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. The 21-year-old man suspected of carrying out the rampage is expected to make his first court appearance this morning. Ahmed al-Aliwi Alyssa has been jailed for investigation of murder since he was arrested inside the King Supers supermarket in Boulder on Monday and treated at a hospital for a leg wound. At today's court appearance, he will hear the pending charges he faces and his rights. He will not be asked to enter a plea. Virginia has become the 23rd state, but the first in the South to abolish the death penalty. Democratic Governor Ralph Northam signed the historic legislation, saying the state has much to be proud of, but not its history of executions. Over our 400-year history, Virginia has executed more than 1,300 people, more than any other state. 
And as I have learned more about how the death penalty is applied in this country, I can say that the death penalty is fundamentally flawed. Most importantly, we know that the system doesn't always get it right. Northam recounted the story of Earl Washington Jr., a black man sentenced to death after being wrongfully convicted of rape and murder in Virginia in 1984. He spent more than 17 years in prison before exoneration. Washington came within nine days of execution. The White House says it's dedicating another $10 billion to try to drive up vaccination rates in low-income, minority, and rural communities around the country. The effort is funded through the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package passed earlier this month. It will include billions for community health centers to expand COVID-19 vaccinations, testing, and other preventive health care. Biden's administration will start distributing the money next month. In addition, the administration said it's allocating $3 billion to bolster vaccine confidence. The money can be used by rural faith-based organizations and by food assistance and housing nonprofits in high-poverty communities to conduct door-to-door outreach and education efforts to urge eligible people to schedule vaccination appointments. COVID-19 has killed more than 545,000 people in the United States. Brazil has surpassed 300,000 deaths from COVID-19. It is only the second nation to hit the grim landmark after the U.S. The daily death toll in Brazil surpassed 3,000 for the first time this week. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Uh, Before we start our regular uh, program in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Police Department uh, basically raided an encampment of unhoused people in the Echo Park area. Over 200 uh, community residents showed up uh, to protect um, those who are homeless or unhoused. Let us go to a clip now from CBS LA about what happened, their take on what happened. Anxious, worried, worried where we're going, where me and my husband and my dog will go. You know, I'm worried. I was crying. <laughs> the ones you see remaining, quite a few of them are refusing the help. And, and it's due to that there's restrictions and there's curfews and there's stipulations to what you have to do while you're there. Hard to believe that they're going to do it in any humane way and without some kind of force. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this community has come together to protect those um, from getting um, harmed in the process of them trying to clean out the space. So again, unlawful assembly has been declared. The crowd has been told multiple times to disperse. However, no force has been used tonight. We saw a little bit of pushing and shoving a few times, but throughout the night so far, very peaceful out here. Reporting live in Echo Park, Jeff Nguyen, CBS2 News. Hey, Jeff, before I let you go, I do have a question for you. According to uh, Mayor Garcetti, I believe he said that as of last weekend, there were 120 tents left, but tonight, Apparently only 19 people are still living there. Do you have any idea as to the numbers of people that are, are, are still living at Echo Park? 
You know, I don't have the exact number, but I will tell you uh, it is probably about two dozen or so. Um, you know, the park is very large. There is the main encampment at the uh, northeastern corner where the bathrooms are, but then there are people scattered around the park as well. So uh, the exact number, we're not sure, but uh, I can tell you that there are between a dozen to about two dozens uh, or so right now, or at least earlier before the LAPD got here, Pat. All righty. And that uh, this is going to be ongoing. Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles has one of the largest, if not the largest number of uh, homeless people on the street each and every night, uh, close to 60,000 uh, people uh, throughout L.A. County uh, homeless, although uh, many say that number is a lot greater. And of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the rising economic disparities and impoverished uh, people, you see increasingly people uh, being forced to be on the street. So this is going to be an ongoing uh, story and struggle. Uh, but now uh, we're going to go to our weekly Earth Watch, where Earth First Nations people have been leading a struggle to defend their environment against the coastal gas link pipeline. Uh, the project being pushed by Calgary-based company TC Energy has the goal of moving natural gas from northeastern British Columbia to the coast where a liquefied natural gas plant is set for construction. But as members of the indigenous um, Wet'suwet'en nation have pointed out, the pipeline not only presents dangers to the environment, it also violates their territorial uh, sovereignty. Um, and there's been a tremendous uh, struggle uh, going on that has gotten some attention here in the U.S. and around the world um, of First Nations people <coughs> defending their land and the environment. And here to discuss all of this with us, I'd like to welcome Jennifer Wickham. Jen is a member of Kasik, who the Grizz Grizzly Bear House in the Bear Wolf Clan of the Wet'suwet'en people. Uh, she is currently working on a feature-length documentary film about the sovereignty of her nation as a creative producer. Uh, she is currently living on land that is pres now known as Northern British Columbia. She says she loves to bead and spend time with her family and dreams of freedom for her people and bright, shiny futures for all young people. Uh, Jennifer Wickham, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. All righty, now we uh, began covering this uh, this issue early uh, last year about the, the struggles that have been going on. A lot has happened uh, since then. And uh, please uh, give us an update on where things are right now um, with that struggle against the coastal gas link pipeline. Right. So, as I'm sure you can imagine, the pandemic has um, wreaked havoc on our communities and, you know, the, the restrictions that have been put in place by our provincial health officer have not stopped the company at all from doing their work. In fact, they took every opportunity to increase their work. Um, they did have a restriction placed on their man camps and how many people that they could have um, in December, but they have regained uh, full capacity um, 
within the last month. And so we've seen an increase in the workers that are out on our territory. We've seen an increase in the surveillance and harassment of all of our people out on the territories. Um, There have been many incidents of uh, our people being stopped out on the territory. And one of the things that is currently happening is that the Environmental Assessment Office, which is a governing body within the province, is um, investigating their restricting access of our own Wet'suwet'en people to go out and practice our our sovereignty and our right to our territory. Um, this is a major violation of Coastal Gas Link's environmental certificate. One of the requirements is that they do not impede our access to our territory, um, and they have been doing that. And so that's currently um, an investigation that's happening with the Environmental Assessment Office. There have been incidents of Coastal Gas Link employees and um, security and contractors uh coming up to our our people out on the territory. Uh, we do regular um, patrolling and surveillance of the activities that they're doing. And in one particular incident recently, um, a security officer actually went up and physically grabbed one of our people. And as I'm sure you can imagine, it was... Um, it, 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 you know, during a global pandemic when people are supposed to be, you know, there's requirements within our our province to stay six feet away, to wear a mask, and all the restrictions that are in place. Um, and the owner of the company was not concerned at all. Um, he said it was not breaking a law, and he would talk to his employees. Um, of course, we're worried about our community safety. We've had um, elders and language speakers within our community um, contract the virus and have passed on. Um, and we have so many transient workers from uh, all across Canada and other places. Um, one of the main contractors is Benati, which is actually from... Italy, um, bringing workers into our small northern communities and essentially bringing COVID-19 with them. So it's been quietly continuing um, to perpetuate genocide on our people during this these very unprecedented times of uh, COVID-19 in this global pandemic. Right. And, you know, Jen, you hear, you know, Canadian public officials uh, going on about um, their relationship with Indigenous uh, nations. And, you know, what um, your people are saying is that the Canadian courts are basically ignoring their own rulings and denying um, their jurisdiction when convenient. So this clearly is violates uh, territorial uh, sovereignty. And we had heard last year that the five 
clans, there are five clans uh, that make up um, the Wet'suwet'en nation, they issued an eviction notice uh, to the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline Company. Um, and it seems as though not only did that not happen, but they're just ignoring it and carrying on with the work, as you say. And a lot of people did civil disobedience. I know women were very much at, at the front lines um, protecting their land. So in addition to this particular ongoing struggle, how do you see the implications of this for other areas of indigenous uh, sovereignty uh, in uh, the, the territory that's now called uh, Canada? And of course that bleeds over into the territory now called the United States. Jen. Right. So the Wet'suwet'en people, like you said, they have, they won in 1997, uh, Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court of Canada determined that the Wet'suwet'en had never extinguished their rights and titles to the territory. And through a freedom of information application, um, uh, you know, it was discovered that the provincial and the federal government and industry, and that included many different industries, including oil and gas, as well as forestry and mining, um, to suppress the outcome of that court case so that they would not be limited in their access to the resources on our territory. Um, this has huge implications for so many other struggles and and uh, fight for jurisdiction and sovereignty, um, certainly within the province of British Columbia as their, the, the majority of this province is has not signed treaties and is completely unceded territory. So the provincial and federal government had said that they want to have conversations with our hereditary chiefs. Um, and, you know, during the pandemic, that hasn't really gone anywhere. <laughs> so we yeah. have yet to see any of the requirements of those discussions, um, any of the promises that the provincial or the federal government made um, come to fruition for our people. Yeah, and of course, um, the protocol of your nation, um, the law, is uh, in line with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is supposed to guarantee Indigenous peoples' right to obtain free, prior, and informed consent for development on your territories. But also, you know, this is a, a fight around <clears throat> Indigenous sovereignty, but it also is a fight for the environment. And, uh, uh, you know, when one thinks of the environmental movement, uh, you think more of the you know, North American and European-based uh, movements uh, for environmental justice. But often what is left out are the fact that uh, frontline communities like Indigenous nations are at the forefront of this fight for the environment. Your uh, final thoughts here. We are continuing to fight. We have um, currently a judicial review that has yet to provide an outcome on the project, uh, we have the support of the UN Committee on Elimination of Racial Discrimination that has, you know, really um, condemned this project and asked Canada to follow through on their commitment 
to the United Declaration um, on the Rights of Indigenous People. And, you know, like you're saying, uh, Indigenous people have a real responsibility to the territory uh, that we're responsible, that we're from and that we carry ancestral responsibilities to and we're not going to quit and we're not going to give up and we're doing it for our children. Um, I have two nieces, one born during the pandemic (laughs) and a nephew that live out on the territory and we're doing everything we can to ensure that they have complete access um, to their right to be with Jordan people as they grow up. Yeah, and Jen, the part I think my sound uh, cut out a bit for you, um, because this is a fight um, about Indigenous sovereignty, but it also is a fight for the environment, isn't it? Um, tell us about that, the, just briefly, the environmental concerns. So this is really a struggle um, for all of us, <laughs> isn't it, Jen? It really is. And so one the the main focus of our fight is to protect our waterways and our wetlands and the river that they want to cross they we have recently learned that they want to do um, micro tunneling and put pipe underneath our that our headwaters and this is the main salmon spawning river in our territory and it feeds all of the nations and all of the communities, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, from here to the coast. And the implications of them, you know, drilling underneath this river is going to affect the salmon habitat. It's going to affect the water quality. We drink directly from the river. And there's not many places in the world where you can still do that. You know, the water isn't safe enough in other places. And so... Even without any complications with a pipeline, such as a break or a spill or a leak, um, the water quality will forever be changed just from putting the pipe underneath of it. And the Coastal Gas Link Company has confirmed and, you know, predicted this, and they have um, gone to communities and offered bottled water and, you know, essentially acknowledging that they're going to destroy our drinking water and that they will provide bottled water in its replacement. And that's just not acceptable to us. That's just outrageous. And Jen, for people who want to find out more about this, who want to um, support uh, the the struggles of the uh, Wet'suwet'en nation, uh, what should they do? And we also want to take this opportunity to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We do partner with them for our weekly Earth Minute, which is coming up uh, next, and our weekly Earth Watch. So for people who want more information, who want to support, be in touch, what should they do, Jennifer Wickham? So we have a website. It's yintaaccess.com, Y-I-N-T-A-H, access.com. And we have links to all of our social media pages on the website, and you can contact us directly through email. Right, and we will try to put that information up. We will put that information up on our social media as well. Well, Jennifer Wickham, thank you for joining us, and please keep us informed as we would like to continue to cover this really critical struggle. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All righty, we're going to go next to our weekly Earth Minute. 
Another indigenous activist has reportedly been killed this week in Honduras. Ceros Escalante was an anti-dam activist and part of the Honduras Lenca indigenous community. Escalante is yet another example of the danger of being an indigenous organizer, taking on big companies and governments over the destruction of indigenous lands. Each year there are record numbers of indigenous and environmental activists killed around the world. The most famous case was Berta Casades, a Honduran environmental activist and winner of the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize, who was shot dead in 2016 over her opposition to a hydroelectric dam. According to the rights group Global Witness, Honduras is one of the most dangerous countries in the world for environmental activists, with at least 120 killed between 2010 and 2017. While these reports highlight the routine murder of activists who oppose extractive industries driving the climate crisis and the destruction of nature, it is not enough unless those responsible are brought to justice. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church from Global Justice Ecology Project. All righty, and this is Margaret Prescott. We are going to take a station break, and when we return, we will be spending uh, the rest of the show with Arlene Noye and uh, Dr. Karen Imimoto as we continue our coverage on the uptick of violence and racist attacks against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Mama, dear mama, look in yonder tree, see that pretty little sparrow, well looking back at me, she can soar above the clouds, way up in the sky, she can fly away from here, wild. Daughter, dear daughter, I'll tell you something true. Remember Granny Liza, well, every night she flew. They tried to keep her down, but there was nothing they could do. She could fly. She could slip the bonds of earth and rise so high. She could fly across the river, the spirit in her hand. Searching, always searching for the promised They love this. Okay, 
welcome our next guests. Um, in March of 2020, when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, former White House occupant, as I said earlier, attempted to link the deadly virus to the people of China. A lot of racism uh, stuff, incidences of racist attacks against Asian Americans on the uptick um, just last year. Um, uh, 3,300 incidences. This is as of March um, 16th, Tuesday, March 16th. It's a much higher number than last year's count of 2,600 hate crimes nationwide over the span of five months. These hate incidences include everything from shunning and slurs to physical attacks and murders. A disproportionate number of attacks have been directed at women. Women made up a far higher share of the reports at 68% compared to men who made up 29% of respondents. Uh, let us go now to a clip of a, a woman an Asian background, an elderly woman in the Bay Area who wasn't going to have it. She basically sent her attacker uh, to the hospital. Let us hear a bit of that story right now. Good evening. I'm Ken Bastida. And I'm Elizabeth Cook. Now at 11 and streaming on CBSN Bay Area. About two hours ago, we spoke exclusively with the Asian woman who attacked her attacker in San Francisco. This comes after several violent encounters in the city and Oakland just yesterday targeting Asians. KPIX 5's Andrea Nakano joins us now with the exclusive interview. Andrea? Yeah, surrounded by her family, 76-year-old Xiao Shenshe was quite shaken up. She says this attack was completely unprovoked, and her first instinct was to fight back. I was very scared and traumatized and really hurt, and, and this eye still breathing. From her senior retirement home in San Francisco, Xiaoshan She candidly talked about the attack and her injuries, with her daughter helping to translate. The red eye still cannot see anything, still breathing. So you no, 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 a lot of the something to absorb the breathing. The attack happened just around 10 this morning on Market and 7th Street. Xiao Shenxie says she was just waiting at the traffic light and then the suspect punched her in her left eye. Immediately, her instincts kicked in to defend herself. While she suffered injuries and required medical attention, it was her attacker that ended up on the stretcher. By the state, uh, for around, around the, the area, and, and fight back. Xiao Shenxie's daughter says her mother cannot see at all out of her left eye and hasn't been able to eat. The hope is time will heal the physical and emotional wounds, but this incident is one that has scarred her for life. As you guys see, she is extremely terrified. She's terrified to even step out. Xiao Shenxie has lived in San Francisco for 26 years and just cannot believe what happened to her today, Liz. It is heartbreaking to see how traumatized she is, but amazing, too, that she was able to fight back the way that she did. But your heart just goes out to her and her whole family and hope that she does make a speedy recovery. 
Yes, and also setting the context for our discussion uh, before we welcome our guests. We know that on March 16th, a series of mass shootings occurred at three spas or massage parlors in the metropolitan area of Atlanta, Georgia. Eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian women, and one person was wounded. The culprit was a 21-year-old white man. Now, the media have given a lot of attention to his excuse for the murders, basically saying that he was a remorseful sex addict and also a sheriff who was initially giving media briefings on the crimes said the killer was well he was having a bad day but there's a lot of pushback of people saying these shootings were a hate crime and in the backdrop of rising anti-asian sentiment in the u.s um, but also increasingly around the world given this covid pandemic let us go now to a short clip of from msnbc i think it was irresponsible for the press conference that the sheriff's office did to basically promote a narrative that could potentially be false. I mean, justice may be blind, but that doesn't mean she's stupid. And so when you put out into a potential jury pool that this shooter says that this was not racially motivated, but then you hear that the shooter's own family turned him in, have we heard whether or not the shooter's family is going to corroborate that this was not a racially motivated crime? The cops have to do an investigation, Joy. They need to look at his social media history, his organization alliances and affiliations. But ultimately, the cops have charged him with eight counts of murder for the eight counts of the, the poor victims in this case. But then the state attorney's office or the district attorney's office is going to look at the evidence as well. But that doesn't preclude the sheriff's office from actually saying that these were hate crimes, that that these were racially motivated and that these were the result of the killer in this case wanting to target intentionally Asian victims. I mean, Joy, this was not a random indiscriminate crime. This man got in his car and he went to these locations to target Asian women. And I saw it was so again, I think it was irresponsible for law enforcement to kind of put into public consumption today the idea that this guy has a sex addiction and he had a bad day. I think that dehumanizes our victims and it makes it problematic for a prosecution later on if a jury pool thinks, you know what, these were just sex workers. We haven't heard that either. And so to kind of affiliate right. it right now, I think from a prosecution standpoint, is really a bad idea. All righty. So now I'd like to welcome our guest. I'd like to welcome Arlene Anoye, who was born and raised in Los Angeles and attended Los Angeles Unified Schools. Um, her grandparents immigrated from Japan to Boyle Heights and in the uh, Los Angeles, and her fa family was, were incarcerated during World War II. Um, she is a secretary at UTLA, the local teachers union, and actually led that union bargaining team through an historic strike and contract fight. But uh, Harleen, I know her not only from her union work, but also the many, many years she has spent being a community organizer, human rights activist, a parent, educator, multicultural and human rights specialist and leader in progressive educational reform. Harleen, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Margaret. I'd also like to welcome uh, Dr. Uh, Karen Umamoto, Professor Umamoto's research centers on issues of democracy and social justice in multicultural societies with a focus on the United States. She also examines and pursues planning processes that include a diverse array of voices 
acknowledges different ways of knowing and allows for meaningful deliberation. She's also concerned about the structural, procedural, and relational obstacles to attaining a just and democratic uh, society. Currently, Professor Umemoto is the Helen and Morgan Chu Chair and Director of the UCLA Asian American Studies Center and Professor of Urban Planning and Asian American Studies. Dr. Karen Umemoto, welcome. Thank you. Uh, we'll actually start with you because um, it's, it's important that uh, we put this discu discussion and this uptick um, or of attacks against uh, the AAPI community in some context. I mean, there's been a long history, and I'm sure Arlene will be able to share some of that with us. And um, even, you know, going back, looking at the Dr. Seuss books um, that are being criticized for anti-Asian racism, Jay Leno just had to come out and make an apology uh, for the jokes that he made at the expense of AAPI communities. So uh, just put this, um, uh, Dr. Karen Umamoto, in an historic context. Yeah, thank you very much. And it's really an honor to be on your show. Um, Asian American exclusion is kind of a theme throughout Asian American history. And, you know, from the earliest um, 18, uh, 1875 uh, Page Act that restricted Asian women from immigrating to the U.S., um, to the Cable Act, and to um, the incarceration of Japanese Americans. Uh, and uh, killing of Vincent Chin. I mean, there's there there are examples all throughout history that many people don't know about because the history uh, of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are so scant in you know U.S. Uh, history textbooks. Uh, we don't really talk about Asian Americans' um, current issues in, in our schools. So there's such a lacking of knowledge throughout this country about Asian Americans, and that's why we're still considered this perpetual foreigner. And I think that's, um, that rings true today. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Arlene Anoya bringing you into this discussion here. You know, it was just horrible. I was reading a story just this morning in the um, Washington Post, I think it was, of an, uh, a man who had died and in Orange County, uh, California, and, uh, you know, the day of his memorial, his family received a letter, a really horrible uh, letter about, well, this is just one um, less Asian, right? And, you know, you know, New York Times has an article about helping um, her Korean-American daughter um, to uh, lo love her identity and also how to fight back against racism. Um, Arlene Anoya, your your thoughts on on these attacks and the impact that is happening on your community? Yes, thank you, Margaret. It is an honor to be with you again. Um, the Asian Pacific Islander community, which is you know very diverse and isn't monolithic. I mean, there's a great deal of grieving going on right now. There's a lot of pain. There's a tremendous amount of fear. Uh, because of the random attacks and the, the violence at the massage parlor is the largest number of a API women or APIs ever uh, murdered in one instance. Although, of course, there's a historical genocide 
of, of our colonialism, you know, across the globe in the Philippines, Guam, Samoa, and all the imperialistic wars uh, that we don't connect as, like, legalized murders. But coming back to this, this particular moment, you know, there's, there is a national conversation, an unprecedented national conversation that we've never seen before, uh, and it is raising the levels of awareness but again, the pain, the grief, the fear, and the anger. Uh, because now I think for we have a clear understanding of white supremacy and how what our experience is as APIs is the institutional racism and sexism, xenophobia, you know, the attitude towards foreigners. Uh, all of that is a part of what we're seeing played out now. And so I think uh, it is an opportunity right now that we have not seen before to really build those alliances and coalitions and take actions to, to really address this in a way we haven't before. Yes, and uh, back to you, Dr. Uh, Karen Umamoto. You know, much has been made about, we know there's always interest in dividing up communities of color, having one against the other. And the narrative that, well, Asian Americans are doing so well, you know, very wealthy, and not only that, because of some of the high-profile um, legal uh, battles about around the whole issue of uh, affirmative action, you know, at Harvard in in the um, the, the UC system in California, um, where a case was made that well, Asian Americans are being discriminated against um, because they tend to have high test scores, et cetera, et cetera. So to try to bring in more. Um, you know, students of color, that that is discrimination against Asian Americans. But this is just kind of exacerbated um, that divide and doesn't quite paint the reality of what the situation is on the ground, Dr. Karen Umamoto. Yeah, thank you. Um, there is that stereotype. There's been that stereotype for, for many years um, that Asian Americans are the model minority, that, you know, we were all successful and and um, I think that that's been divide, very divisive. And I think that model minority trope has always been used as a wedge, particularly against between whites, you know, to wedge us between um, uh, between to wedge Asians between um, with pe against people of color, other people of color. So um, there's a lot of education that we need to do about. You know, the history of Asian Americans, there's a big difference between immigrants and refugees. We're a bifurcated community economically, where you have some people who are quite wealthy and many people who suffer the same uh, ills of poverty that other groups do. And that has to do with the history of immigration law and many other, many other factors. So, but yes, that's, and there are also misconceptions about Asians, um, there are Asian Americans who support um, this kind of movement against affirmative action, but the majority of Asian Americans are supportive of affirmative action, and, and that's a fact that often gets lost. And I think we have to do more within the Asian American community to educate our fellow Asian Americans about the fact that uh, these affirmative action 
policies were won through the civil rights movement, the same civil rights movement that also led to immigration reform that allowed some of these same people to even come here in the first place. So there's just so much education to do. Um, and I really share a worry, <laughs> if I can, about sure. the focus on hate crime legislation, because I think that, especially um, with this most recent attack, so many people are kind of hanging their hat on the hope that this will be uh, tried, prosecuted as a, and convicted as a hate crime, but that and that that issue of, of hate crime has become a symbol of kind of acceptance, inclusion, and treatment, you know, with dignity for Asian Americans. And I think that uh, I see kind of a slow train wreck happening because hate, most the majority of um, these hate incidents are not uh, crimes, and so you're. This this um, latest mass shooting is not a, uh, a, a more accurate representation of the kinds of incidents that are happening. Um, majority of hate crimes in the U.S. Um, are not reported. In fact, um, there's like only 5% of um, hate incidents that are reported to the National Crime Victimization Survey are actually recorded as hate hate crimes um, in, you know, according to, to law enforcement agencies. So anyway, there's just, uh, and the majority of people who are going to get caught in the net of increased sanctions are black and brown bodies. And I think we're going to see an increased criminalization of um, black, indigenous, and people of color uh, if we put more, if we broaden the definition of hate crimes, and if we increase surveillance, um, partly because of the fact that a lot of the jurisdictions that um, experience hate crimes are in the hands of law enforcement agencies who do not necessarily have an interest in prosecuting, investigating and prosecuting hate crimes in which um, the perpetrators are white. And so you're asking a law enforcement system plagued with um, racism itself to, to you know, police racism. And so yeah. I think there's so many things that are problematic about um, seeing hate crime legislation as a panacea. Right. And, and Arlene, uh, there's so much to unpack here. Um, recently, we did a, actually a roundtable uh, earlier this week with a group of sex workers, um, one, two of whom were women of Asian descent. And uh, Red Canary Song, um, an, an organ, a sex worker rights organization, um, they put out a call. They are opposed, I suppose, picking up on, on the point uh, that was just made by Dr. Umemoto against the call for increased policing, um, which they don't think will be helpful 
at all. But there's also, one can also see the balancing act of, of what's happening here, of people saying, well, this is a hate crime against Asian American people. I'm talking about the shootings at the spa in particular, which indeed it is. Um, it just so happens that it was also an attack on women, which indeed it is. Uh, it was, and an attack on Asian American women, which it was. But layered on top of that is just the assumption that the women were uh, sex workers. And I'll just read you something that Red Canary Song says. <laughs> Whether or not they were actually sex workers or self-identified under that label, we know that as massage workers, they were subjected to sexualized violence stemming from the hatred of sex workers, Asian women, working class people, and immigrants. And and Arlene, you your family certainly has that history of, you know, what happened of Asian Americans being, you know, rounded up and basically put in a concentration camp. Uh, similarly, German Americans, that did not happen to them. Uh, and then there's this whole racial uh, sexualization issue that is happening and reflected in what happened in the spa killings. Um, just your thoughts on all this, Arlene. Yes, uh, thank you, Margaret. The intersectionality between race and, and gender has, you know, always been there. We didn't have the words for it. I, I knew that, you know, the uh, objectification, the dehumanization, the erotization, and the, uh, you know, the all of the stereotypes that API women have undergone over our years uh, has really impacted us. And I think that we're, what we're seeing is, again, that played out in, in the murders. But I really uh, I agree so wholeheartedly with what Karen said, that we don't want to just focus on, you know, the hate crime or the murder because this is systemic. And, you know, when you look at it, you can look at the individual, you know, who killed somebody, Mr. Long in this case, and, uh, you know, yeah, he's a racist and he's a sexist and so forth, but it takes us away from really analyzing what's going on in, uh, with the uh, races, the historical and institutional racism that is the foundation of this country. And I want to just share a little bit about my own personal feelings as a third-generation Asian Pacific Islander woman, as a Japanese-American that, yeah, our family went through uh, the internment, the incarceration, and it was not talked about until much later. But what, you know, what strikes me is that you, you know, my, my grandmother got, went crazy. She got mentally ill from the experience. Uh, I had an aunt who contracted tuberculosis in camp. She was only 20 years old, and she died. Um, and there were just layers of pain that my family was never able to process and uh, work through. And so we grew up with that model minority, you know, let's pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, we can do it. Uh, and it's an, again, an individual approach. And so we, we deny ourselves, we minimize ourselves, the culture is to, you know, honor our, our family. And so we, I felt very alone. Uh, and I think that when we see ourselves individually alone is when we are so powerless. But being able to, to understand the historical uh, 
way that the black power movement and the civil rights struggle uh, really led to the minority myth and uh, suppressing activism, suppressing black power, suppressing social programs, and, and pitting a wedge between us with a hierarchical system that was construction, constructed and manufactured, very intentional. Everything that's been done was very intentional. So, um, you know, understanding these roots and these systems has been uh, something that I think the API movement is really waking up to in a way that we've never done before. We're talking to our children. Our children understand it even more, and our grandchildren. So it's, it's this pivotal time, I think, in this, in this moment of history to understand that, yeah, we're not going to be focusing on individual hate. I mean, we know what Trump did and how he, as the ex-president, uh, created uh, the foment of anti-Asian attacks and hatred and, you know, and deportations and, and everything that goes along with that. But again, it's, it's not new. It's been happening, like you said, since the beginning of our history in this country. Uh, and there is a great amount of pain when we reflect on our ancestors and what the struggles have been. But also there's resilience. Our community is very resilient. And there's also solidarity. And being in the labor movement, it's been very exciting to see how we come, we've come out strongly against racism uh, and, and sexism. But we have taken a stand for our students who are predominantly Latino and predominantly black, Latinx and black. And, um, you know, with this pandemic, we've kept our communities as safe as we could and bargain hard and continue to bargain hard. So it's all connected to how we change our systems because, again, the labor movement and unions have been very racist throughout history. But we are now in a position to create the kind of changes within by coming together in solidarity through mutual aid, through organizations that bring everyone together to understand we're, we're all fighting the same core of white supremacy. Absolutely. On that note, um, Dr. Karen Umamoto and Arlena Noye, I'm afraid we are out of time, but we'll have you back because we need to uh, continue uh, this really, really important conversation. And, and uh, Dr. Karen, just to say, we know historically of uh, the uh, Asian woman very, very close to, to Malcolm X and the role that Asian Americans played in, in winning uh, the first ethnic studies program at San Francisco State. We want to thank both of you for joining us, but I am going to have to uh, wrap things up. Thank you for joining us. And I would like to thank the Sojourner Truth team. By the way, we do want to welcome back Romero Funes, who is back on the ground here. Thank you, Romero. And our uh, audio engineer today, Gary Baca. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. We want to thank Ron Baca for his work, for his help with the segment on the hate crimes against the AAPI community. Sojourner Truth will be back on the tomorrow with our weekly roundtable. You won't want to miss that. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archive. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Thank you for listening, and y'all please stay safe. Sing a song for the hustlers, trading at the bus stop, single mothers,